Welcome to the PIP Podcast. Today I'm speaking with author and activist and founder of Local Futures and director of the new film Planet Local, A Quiet Revolution. I'm speaking with Helena Norberg-Hodge. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Helena. Really happy to be here. So firstly, um, Local Futures, could you tell, explain to us what what Local Futures is about and um, why you've sort of created it and what inspired you to become so passionate about this? Yeah, well, it's quite a long story in that I was very interested in nature. I loved it, but I wasn't an activist. I was sort of more normal person. Having grown up in Sweden, I'd also lived in America. I had ended up studying in France and in Germany and so on. And I, so I'd learned a lot of languages and sort of by default, I'd become a linguist. I was living in Paris. And then I was asked to go out as part of a film team to this unknown part of the world that I had never heard of. It's called Ladakh. And it's actually the westernmost part of Tibet high up at 12,000 feet, surrounded by the Himalayan mountains, but it's a part of Tibet that belonged to India politically. And this area had been sealed off from the outside world. No one had been allowed to go there. And now suddenly it was thrown open to outsiders. And I came out with this uh, German film team, actually, thinking I'd be there for six weeks. And I encountered the most amazing culture. And I had traveled quite a lot and encountered other indigenous people and so on. I had never ever encountered a place that had been untouched by colonialism, by Christian missionaries. By mm. that I mean the Christian missionaries had been there, but they'd only been able to convert a few orphans. So people still had their own names and their own deeply connected culture where they were connected to their part of the world their land and they had been evolving and developing their their place their culture for thousands of years in their own way and i had never encountered people who were happier or healthier mm. i was amazed because also they had these large beautiful houses and there was no hunger, there was no unemployment, there was no poverty as we know it. So I fell in love with these people and I ended up staying when the film was finished. And I had become within a very short period an activist who was trying to explain that in the name of growth and development, what was happening was actually destroying not only viable local economies and healthy local food systems, but destroying people's self-respect mm. and that creating a type of greed and competition, even violence. And I, this awareness grew over the years when I was, um, I was working with the Ladakhi people to try to bring in enough information so that they would be informed about their choices. The government was pushing DDT, which was outlawed in the West, but they had no information about it. They had no knowledge that this friendly white powder brought in by smiling agricultural experts was actually so lethal that it was banned in the West. Uh, they also brought in asbestos. They were building a hospital of asbestos while in the West we were tearing down buildings. Mm. So I saw this huge need for this sort of information to prevent people from abandoning their ecological and spiritual values and destroying their self-respect and so on. 
So there was, I started these projects that were broadly speaking about doing everything we could to protect more self-reliance and self-respect and showing that fossil fuels which are being brought in, there was particularly there huge potential to use renewable energy, particularly solar, but also small scale hydro. And so we, we, I ended up, you know, as a volunteer starting these projects. Later on, my husband joined me and then we had a team of volunteers. And within about three years, we were also invited to work in other places, including Bhutan. And in Bhutan, I saw the same destructive impact. So very, very soon after this exposure, I became, you know, just raging activist, trying to going back to the West, trying to explain that a lot of what they thought was good change, like bringing in schooling, bringing in microcredit, uh, and even bringing in renewable energy, the way it was being brought in wasn't at all what people thought. And that we really needed to wake up to the way that the global economic system and global economic development was so destructive. So I became an advocate for localization or decentralization. So very long answer yeah. to say that uh, it was this deep experiential knowledge that informed my activism and so ever since the 70s a lot of the work of my organization has been sharing a big picture holistic view in both more traditional cultures indigenous cultures third world if you like to call it that or global mm -hmm. as well as in the industrialized world and with the hope that we can create around the world, community-based movements where people start regaining greater self-reliance, greater self-respect, and that we can also build up to a movement that will lead to fundamental political change. Mm. So it's not just the sort of smaller traditional cultures that you're sort of trying to talk to, but it's about sort of first world cultures where we have lost that in a lot of ways about trying to bring that in so that we can experience some of the joy that you could see happening Absolutely. in the dark. And it's also, it's, it's very clear that if we can get more deep dialogue, more deep collaboration between the most sort of industrialized peoples and if you like the least industrialized people, we can get a conversation that's so helpful both ways. Mm. We are not allowed to just be aware of how much we've lost. The whole dominant narrative keeps telling us we're so wealthy, we have everything. Mm. Why are we drug addicted? Why are our children suffering from depression? What's wrong with us? We're selfish, we're greedy, we have everything. Well, what we don't have is community. And by that, I mean a deep connection also between the ages, between young and old and a fabric where we actually feel interdependent, where we're supporting each other. We mm. don't have deep connection with nature, with the animals, with the plants, and we don't have a sense of meaningful work, most of us. Mm. We're very disconnected, we're very lonely, and we're getting more and more tra traumatized by what's going on in the world. And all the time the message to us is, it's your fault. How do you even dare to be you know, as I say, depressed. And also it's your fault. You are the one who is so greedy 
because you keep driving your car, you keep wanting to fly somewhere on holiday, you're destroying the world. And this message is, is wrong. Mm. And it is deeply, deeply damaging in terms of allowing us to step back and seeing in a more holistic way that actually we in many ways have been trapped in assumptions and in structures where our taxes and our laws in our countries are preventing us from doing the right thing. The taxes are actually subsidizing the opposite of what we're doing. And so for instance, it makes it very difficult for a small farmer or a permaculture grower who wants to sell a few vegetables, mm. able to do it in a way that's gonna work both for the grower and the consumer because our governments are making toxic food from far away, highly processed dead food from far away, cheaper than local fresh food. So mm -hmm. this is, if we understand that big picture, there's a lot we can do at the community level to counter it. And that's what we call localization. So um, I think global, like if you were saying, globalization is sort of behind this and some of the global trade rules and things like that so I mean there's a lot of those and you just said you know it's often cheaper to buy something from the other side of the planet than it is to buy it locally and it makes it you know impossible for these small market gardeners who want to give it a go and grow local food and they're trying to make a living out of it but they're struggling so I mean I guess there's two parts to that so could you explain how this globalization and the global trade rules works that it makes that a possibility and that you have these insane situations where something's grown in one country, flown across the world to get peeled or processed and then flown back. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, one country's exporting just as much of a product such as milk or something and importing the same amount. So, I mean, these things just don't make sense. So what is it that's allowing that to happen? Yeah, I, I think this is such an important issue. I just wish we could blast it in on top of every news yeah. program that this mad, completely insane trade going on in the global economy now is the main reason for climate change, the main reason for mountains of plastic. And sadly, it, or not, maybe not sadly, it's actually in a way good that it's mainly happening because of ignorance. And the ignorance goes way back to the beginning of the modern economy, because the economic system actually started with global traders and elites who in Europe, they pushed people off the land through new regulations. They were squeezing people off the land through so-called enclosures in Europe. And then at the same time, they were through genocide, slavery, force, pushing people away from producing for their own needs. And every community needs more than just one thing. So people would be engaged in you know, having some animals, finding vegetables, trees, to produce for their basic needs, especially their food needs, but food, clothing, and shelter basically from the land around them. Now, these people through slavery were forced away from that onto huge cotton plantations or, or sugar plantations or tea plantations. And then the elite traders 
benefited from having slavery on one side and a growing economy, meaning generating money through industrial techno-economic growth. So here they were, you know, becoming richer and richer. And now to what extent, you know, there was conscious manipulation, there certainly will have been a lot, but what happened is that this sort of colonial system based on slavery, later on, we were told and the world thought that these countries that had become enslaved, later colonized, were now independent. What we didn't realize was that by the time these countries gained independence, they had been economically destroyed to become producers for this global system and for these global traders. So their economic growth, helped by the World Bank and the IMF, was actually to go more and more in debt and mm -hmm. to engage in a trade that benefited global traders, but really nobody else. Of course, there were elites in India and in African countries that got richer and richer and richer because they could offer very cheap labor into the global trading market. So there were elites on both sides that were benefiting, but increasingly, the majority have been doing you know, less and less well from this crazy wasteful system. After the Second World War, when the World Bank and IMF were brought in, they were brought in along with something called the GATT, which is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And this was actually all of it, the World Bank, IMF and the GATT were brought in with a lot of well-intentioned business people and, and policymakers and you know I had in my family there were leaders in Sweden and so on who totally believed that this was a necessary process and that was that we must integrate or harmonize they call it all economic activity around the world and we must do this to avoid another world war another depression now as I say there was a lot of goodwill going into this but unfortunately, the setup was already there and the global banks and corporations were at the table. And so integrating meant giving them power to go in and out of countries again, encouraging on the land. It's key that those of us working in permaculture, in, in any work trying to restore health to the land and to community, that we understand this, that what was happening to the land all the time was to push bigger and bigger monocultural industrial scale, whether in forestry, food, fiber, in every area. So basically, in the name of integrating economic activity, what our governments were ending up doing was subsidizing infrastructure, subsidizing research at universities, using our taxes to encourage, say, even new machinery, a new harvesting machine for tomatoes. This was seen as progress. Mm. They weren't looking at was that that big machinery was destroying the small players and with it destroying diversity, destroying the fabric of life. Diversity is a fundamental principle. And actually, all the time, these monocultures we're moving towards producing less and less per unit of land. But the thinking was so econometric 
that they were saying, oh, look, they were now quantifying it in terms of profit. Mm. So getting lost in the numbers about how much money is being made and what it was doing for GDP, gross domestic product, was actually completely misleading. So yeah, here we are today where there's madness around encouraging bigger and bigger scale production on the land, more and more monoculture, using more and more energy, more and more minerals, destroying the planet with all that use and destroying jobs and secure livelihoods. All the time this was linked to pushing people into bigger cities. And it's happened very rapidly in places like China, you know, just in the last 30 years. Cities like Beijing actually have about 60 million people. They have 18 satellite cities around Beijing. It's a complete nightmare. And the pollution from China, which has been pushed by this trading system to create a, a, a factory out of its whole country to produce for other countries, things being flown back and forth, transported by ship in larger and larger quantities, so yeah, now routinely, in the name of growing the economy by increasing global trade, what our governments have ended up doing is destroying the land, destroying livelihoods, driving up pollution massively, while making fewer and fewer people richer and richer. Mm. So I, I think, you know, getting this message out is very difficult. We have essentially now a media that is completely linked to global corporate control. We have our government so blinded by this idea they've got to, they believe they're doing what people need. They, most of the people I speak to in government actually believe that they're doing this in the interest of the voter, but in actual fact, it's in the interest of global corporations. So, and then I just want to add that we need to be really clear that when we step back to look at this, let's not assume that everybody working in HSBC or in Monsanto or in BlackRock, that all of these are evil people who are totally aware of what they're doing. That's not how it works. The average person in those institutions is concerned about their job, needs to earn a living, often very nice family people or whatever, but they are so blinded that they are now being driven by assumptions like, right now the big thing that's being put out there that to feed the world, and now we've got even more ammunition for this argument. Now Ukraine has shown us that We've got to do something because people in Africa are starving because of the war in Ukraine. So what we've got to do now is move towards plant-based lab food, lab meat, lab produced food, because this is, we've got to do this to feed the world. Now, we desperately need to get people from the permaculture movement, from people who worked on the land, who know how productive it can be, how rewarding it can be, how people are longing to be more connected to the land. And if we could just understand that if even a fraction of the subsidies and the taxes and the infrastructure would be used to support genuinely productive, flourishing food systems, we could in a very short time see 
a completely different picture. But the big hindrance is that most people aren't looking at the big picture. Mm. So what are there some examples of where that is happening, where there are some subsidies that are supporting those smaller growers so that they can actually compete in that market? There are a few examples, um, and it's remarkable because their whole system is so heavily blindly geared towards this. And for me, the, the big problem is that the environmentalists, the social activists, you know, people concerned with poverty, with unemployment, with the rights of labor unions, with people concerned with climate change, with plastic, with toxic pollution and the increase in cancer. All of these people are generally not looking at this economic trajectory. So they're not articulating clearly to government and to big business. And that's what we really have to do. But luckily around the world, there's enough intuitive awareness and there are more examples. So right now, one of our colleagues is a member of parliament in Japan and they is putting forth a local food act to bring about exactly that. Another colleague is the former minister for agriculture in Japan. And he saw, he actually grew up as a farmer and he actually saw the changes that came in after the second world war when they were pressured by America to go towards this large scale monocultural production. And he experienced how destructive it was he realized it was the trade treaties that were causing this craziness because governments were handing over power to the global trading banks and corporations. And so he, he decided to go into politics, became the Minister for Agriculture and tried to change the whole agenda, but wasn't able to. So now he's been working with local governments and local communities and they're they've been able to make some headway at the local government level. In Canada, in Toronto, um, or I think in the Ontario region in particular, there have been some meaningful policy changes. In America, even a thing very much brought about through grassroots pressure, they've had in many places now a system where people who get welfare for food and who get paid food stamps, they are now being, they've been getting twice the value if they buy from local farmers markets. Mm. And, local and that's a, a really, you know, meaningful change. And it shows us that it can be done. But what we need to also be really driving home is we've got to help this. So all of you out there who are growing food and stuff, I just hope you'll help to spend a little bit of time to get this bigger picture out. Help us to get our film Planet Local out. Help Via Campesina to be heard. Via Campesina is a, you know, has about 200, maybe even 300 million small farmers that first came together in the so-called third world, but there are small farmers associations from the whole world who have tried to raise awareness about how the trade treaties are destroying them. And, you know, there are a few uh, areas where you can really help to get the big picture out so that people wake up to the fact that it is crazy to be shipping wheat to England from Australia, which is happening, and wheat from Europe to Australia. It's mm. crazy. And it's, 
And that craziness, I actually believe that nobody would want if they knew about it. Mm. Uh, and yet, even in government, most people don't know about it. So what we really want are the sort of small scale diversified farms that um, can be not only from a, the benefit of the people, but also on the land, it's beneficial. It's more beneficial to the earth and the planet. Could you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what is good about the small scale system and how that benefits both people and the planet? I would love to. And I also would like to alert people to the film, The Biggest Little Farm. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, that film is a fabulous example of how in a short period you can transform your dead, dying soil, producing nothing into this flourishing, very productive farm. Now, some people bought into what is helped by corporate think tanks. There are definitely think tanks that try to undermine these displays and demonstrations. They say, oh, well, that got some funding and that wasn't really operating in the market. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't operating in the normal market because the normal market is completely corrupted now by the influence of the So what I'm seeing is the miracle of either things like Biggest Little Farm, where there is some funding, where some people who are fairly well off decide to support these projects. I'm seeing lots of those around the world. And they are also examples of this, you know, thriving, just people thriving. You're seeing lots of people who've been doing, you know, hugely successful work in Silicon Valley or in banking, and they are deciding what they enjoy mm. more farming. Prince Charles in England loves farming, you know. So privileged people are doing this because they actually have a choice. But I suppose the most inspiring thing is that at the grassroots in Australia, but also around the world in Japan, every every country that I'm in touch with, and it's lots of countries, you are also seeing people who are starting out with just blood, sweat, and tears from the bottom up, and they just decide we're going to do this. And, and thank God that that's still continuing to happen. Thank God it's people just waking up to the fact that they're so much happier when they do that. Even when they have so much less money, but they're actually working with the soil, they're working with life. They have the joy of doing something that every single day is different. Mm. Nothing in life ever stays static. Every cell in our body, every, every aspect of life is unique and constantly changing. So it's wonderful to see really countless examples of small scale grassroots initiatives where there's people like you, Robin, you know, growing food right where you live, whether it's people who have managed, like a friend of mine in England, who managed to get enough support to get a 50 acre bit of land that was just barren paddock and just getting that land through through the help of a land trust, a biodynamic land trust in England, has been able to demonstrate what you can do when you have a permaculture-inspired biodynamic farm that is able, that is close enough to a population 
Um, it's in Totnes, which is the sort of bar and bay of, of England. Uh, and they've been able now, just in a few years, to turn it into just the most productive, amazing example, linking up with local bakers and local businesses to also buy some of the equipment to, um, uh, to process grain and you know, growing some of that on the land, having some cattle on the land, highly diversified. They've also been able to link into um, some government support for people who are um, either mentally, uh, you know, suffering from mental illness or mental, um, you know, mentally handicapped people. So they have some people coming onto the farm to work um, supported by government funding. And, and by the way, right here in Byron Bay, there's a woman who started a project here called the Paddock. And it's only for, I think it's about an acre and a half of land, that because she's getting some support from NDIS, she's able to make a go of it uh, and providing, you know, wonderful, healthy food for the local community and healing of people. Healing. Yeah. What's beautiful in that particular project too is that you have you know, as it were, completely normal, healthy people joining in with more handicapped people. And it's this coming together in the community that just, yeah, it's a splendid example mm. of the healing of people and the soil. And let's not forget, you know, that the healing is also connected to having fresh, nutritious food. Mm. It was wonderful in COVID, in all our contacts around the world, how strongly the local food movement grew as people became aware not only they needed fresh nutritious food to stay healthy but they also realized that the supermarket shelves were often empty when the local farmers market or the local growers they were often able to double their production almost overnight and in many cases they did it without increasing the cost at all mm. and it was a huge leap in recognizing the importance of local food economies through COVID and now also through the war in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely opened people's eyes, seeing that the you know, people just think there's always food on the shelf, it's always going to be there. And, yeah, to see that has made people think. So have you seen, from your perspective, that there has been more of a growth since then? Like there's actually been changes being made Oh, absolutely. And I see this is also what's so wonderful. Once you start, you know, looking at this global trajectory and you see very clearly how destructive it is around the world. But at the same time, when you're really looking at what's happening at the smaller scale and, the, you know, really get down to the ground and the local communities, even in cities, having been in touch with that for all these years, having helped to start a lot of these initiatives in many countries, from Slovakia to you know, Hungary to you know, America here, um, having been involved with that, it's just incredibly inspiring to see how much is growing. And now, absolutely, I mean, it's just an explosion of people who want to go back to the land. And by the way, also in countries like India and China, 
even in Hungary, uh, not Hungary, in Turkey, in Hungary as well, but in Turkey, we have a colleague who used to work with us in Ladakh and um, there too, same thing has happened. People have been leaving the city and wanting mm. a life closer to the land and with a very strong focus on, we must grow food. Um, and it's, it's not always easy. People need to be um, more informed by the, the successes and the failures over these last 30, 40 years that this movement has been growing. But by the way, it's been growing hand in hand with the escalation of globalization. So we've got this fork in the road. Mm. But as the growth of these local food initiatives, local community building initiatives, you know, eco villages, permaculture have been growing around the world, there's so much to learn from the successes and failures. And there's so much also to learn through a more global, um, deeper dialogue to see that in the less industrialized parts of the world, there are so many more people with the skills and the knowledge who know how to work. Mm. We're also able, you know, they're more connected in intergenerational community. Every mother tends to have more caretaker for every child. They tend also to have more time. And we don't realize how one of the biggest impoverishments for us is the loss of time. And we tend to blame ourselves. We tend to think, oh, we're not managing our time well enough. Well, we need to actually connect with others to be able to collectively slow down, collectively get our children off the screen. Doing it on our own is very hard. And that's one of the things we can learn from more contact with less industrialized people. So yeah, an explosion, I mean, it's, it's very, very encouraging. And, and on the other side, I do want people to feel a bit alarmed, not alarmed to be disempowered, but alarmed enough to want to have their voices heard for their values, their vision. And that needs, that needs podcasts like what you're doing. It needs taking the time or to send out an email newsletter or to subscribe to your magazine, you know, to help get this picture out so we have a stronger collective voice for that will reach our policymakers, maybe just starting with the local council, but even at higher levels. So um, if we don't do that, we're hurtling blindly into algorithms, pushing the whole world towards robots and towards a very, very frightening future where Already now, I, I think so much of the damage is caused because in the financial casino, it's algorithms that decide on a daily basis what the value of the Australian currency is, what the value is in Sweden, etc. It's a blind, almost like a monstrous Frankenstein machine. And unfortunately, as long as our leaders are allowed to count GDP the way they do and to accumulate profit the way they do without any rules or regulations, we're going to be rushing in the wrong direction, using more and more minerals, destroying more and more people's lives through mining, to use more and more energy and minerals to displace people and create an ever more inhuman large bureaucratic monstrous system while at the same time ignoring the truth and the reality of this human scale path 
led by women, by the way, almost all the successful stories in the localization movement. And they include not just in food growing, they include women setting up right here, for instance, we have a hospice center. That's a wonderful way of allowing, allowing people to die in a humane way in nature with caring people, you know, with community. We have millions of examples that I know you know about, you know, where teenagers help to go into nature, help to communicate in a deeper sharing and, and vulnerable way with each other. So they can be, they can be seen to be imperfect. They can talk about their eating disorder or about, about sexual abuse or about problems they've had honestly. And without being afraid of being rejected, this coming together in community groups is part of the localization movement because it needs the face-to-face, -face, it needs the community where um, people are sharing their journey of healing. And this is something that Alcoholics Anonymous has proven now for a long, long time, how effective that is against addictions of all kinds. So this is all part that, that is happening intuitively. It's happening naturally. As people feel more cut off and lonely, they're starting these projects. But we need, as I say, to ensure that this, this should be part of what the government supports. You know, that it shouldn't be expensive to go on a, on a community-based vision quest, you know, yeah. as part of the healing. It shouldn't be... And why is it expensive? Because the algorithm robot path makes human labor too expensive. We can't afford ourselves mm. and, as part of the system. So let's speak out against the algorithm path without demonizing people, without anger, realizing it goes beyond left-right politics. This is about humanity. It's about survival and it's about well-being. So let's really speak out clearly about what we as members of a society, we are members supposedly of a democracy. Let's, let's really make sure that, that we do have a democracy and that our voices are heard. Yeah, well, speaking about well-being, like a, a big part of all of this is not so much yeah, money or the, even the environment, but it's about that happiness and that like what people need is that connection. And in your book, Local is Our Future, you talk about steps to an economics of happiness. So, yeah, how? what are some of the sort of most important or obvious ways that this really helps with that happiness with people? Well, you know, all of my knowledge doesn't come from me. It just comes from that experience in the Ladakhi Tibetan culture in the early years. And so, you know, well, it may be a quick list of what I would say that, that they had that local, localizing rebuilds. See, indigenous means belonging to a place. It means coming from that place. And so indigenous cultures had evolved in deep dialogue with nature. That's why we had this incredible diversity of cultures. And now you have one consumer culture that's being imposed worldwide. It's not a culture, it's a system. It's a growth-oriented, techno-driven thing that just shouldn't even be called a culture. But anyway, so to, to come back to the healing, 
what what we what I so I'm so thrilled to see happening in the modern world is that people are often coming to this without having lived in or even thought about indigenous culture. But what's happening is the recognition, the absolute recognition of the need of community. And again, in COVID, there are so many beautiful examples of people realizing, oh, over here, the people who are 70 years old might need our help. And even though they couldn't meet up, they organized structures to support each other. And to, and you even had examples of people coming out to sing across the street, like once a week, they would come mm. a community sing song from you know different parts of the street because they weren't allowed to be so close to each other. Mm. And by the way, the singing together and making music together, again, something that virtually every indigenous culture did. It's a deep spiritual, psychological and physiological healing when we sing and chant together. And it's again, it's a human right. But in the industrial culture, we were silenced. The majority of people think, oh no, no, I can't sing. Mm. trained to believe you have to be perfect to be anything no 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 this is a path diversity means imperfection diversity means you don't have to be a perfect singer to really enjoy coming together to to sing or chant and that's happening there's all these movements towards kirtans and even going back to things like kaylee's or barn dances and what i love about those is that they're also a type of dancing and singing where young and old link up together. And this I experienced also even in Spain in the 80s. My husband and I lived then in Ladakh half the year and in Spain for the other half of the year. And in Spain, it was in a very traditional village where still literally at the, at the cafe at two o'clock in the morning, the baby and the 90-year-old granny would be there and everybody in between. And when our friends from England would come to visit, they'd be so thrilled because suddenly their teenage daughters were willing to go with them. Mm -hmm. And it had become taboo. You wouldn't have anything to do with your parents. It just wasn't cool. Yeah. So we influenced by the culture, you know, we don't realize. And so this intergenerational connection, the singing together, movement, all our lives in our whole evolution, we used our bodies. We actually have these hands and muscles to use them. And people feel better. They actually now can trace how the vagus nerve is affected, how our, the serotonin in our brain, when we use our bodies. And we now also know that greater intelligence is achieved if young children grow up learning how to use tools and how to use their hands, it affects the development of the brain. So again, movement and practical work and skills, not having to be perfect. You don't have to become a perfect carpenter to get joy and practical benefit from mm. being able to work a bit of wood. Again, these are things that are coming back. You know, intuitively people are developing a hunger for it, but often it's within a very busy schedule of almost having no time. So another aspect of the localization movement is to actually start a process of slowing down. One of my colleagues even calls it a sloth club in Japan. <laughs> one of the most speedy cultures, you know, in the world. And 
but again with more consciousness as we start doing more of the community-based local financing supporting the smaller scale businesses more human-led less machine-led we actually can slow down um, and i suppose um, of course as part of the traditional indigenous experience what i lived in and what i came to realize was that children grew up deeply connected to animals and that meant to life and death as part mm -hmm. of the annual cycle and i saw that little boys like even age six carrying a little baby goat or carrying their sibling actually affects their hormonal development mm. so growing up caring for life even caring for plants but for animals for younger siblings it creates a different human being the hormonal balance is different and this is something that's now recognized there are studies with animals and i actually experienced this myself with friends in spain who had a dog and in the forest there had been a um a wildcat nest that had fallen down and and the local people brought this little baby cat to them and the dog developed milk yeah. and that, and so later on that that wildcat really wild it was a, a type of lynx was like a sibling to the dogs and they would sort of play together but yeah. the be up on the roof and then it would go out at night and be wild and after some years it, it must have reverted to the wild it didn't come back again mm. but it was really amazing to see the dog developing mm. the cat <laughs> so so where to from here for people so you know people they want to feel that connection and they want to start living more locally and there are options such as farmers markets and buying local and and um on your website, I see you've got a bit of an act activist guide or a guide of things that people can do, an action guide. And, um, yeah, so I can see that, like, you know, we're mostly talking about food, but it's and in that you've got business, finance, energy, consumption, community, and then you've sort of got actions for each of those. What are some of the sort of most powerful actions that you think people could take? Well, I guess I do want to stress that in all this experience now for over 40 years, that I would say there is nothing more important to focus on than food. Let's remember that, you know, if we have more crises, which we almost certainly will, uh, both financial and climate, that the one thing that we all need every single day is food. Mm. And the madness is that our governments are still supporting this craziness where it's coming from further and further away. We saw a big ship blocked in the Suez Canal. You know, there's just this global, global supply chains are failing. So building up a diversified local food economy, best done through community collective action. Such by, as some examples. Well, such as, you know, together starting a farmer's market where we also get the community involved in running it so that it supports more growers, more diversification. And the thing about a local market is that it demands diversification. So you're suddenly getting a market that encourages what the soil needs and what creates more enjoyable work as well. 
And so really small and, uh, you know, it's happening from big cities, but also in more rural areas to help that diversification. Some of the ways that people are also doing that is through cooperative initiatives, through community land trust, coming together, you know, to collectively support this. Sometimes you can have subscription farming where even, I don't know how much you grow, but if you can get enough consumers to sign up to paying you every year what you need for the water, for the seeds, for all the work, and they pay in advance. So you have a guaranteed income. And if there is a drought or, or a hail storm or something and crops are lost, the investors also lose. But this is all happening at a local human scale where people understand the importance of that food. You have a lot of initiatives, you know, too with communities for agriculture where people will come and help with the harvest. And I know you know, probably as a grower, it can be very difficult to rely on people who don't know what they're doing. So that's not always the best way, but it can be a wonderful way for the consumer to become more in love with growing and aware of what it entails. And then, of course, a lot of other things, as you know, in the permaculture movement that's happening involves trainings on the land that can help to bring in some income. Um, but so I would say I can't overstate how important it is to get more happening in the food arena and, and to understand also this importance of diversifying as much as possible. This is something that most farmers are resistant to because they've been so trained into specializing for monocultural markets further and further away. So they often will think of diversification as inefficient because yes, within the dominant economy, if they don't have the labor, it's difficult to diversify. The machinery lends itself to bigger monocultural work. But I think from the bottom up, community led initiatives are showing that the more diversified almost, the better, the more productive. And that film, The Biggest Little Farm, is a very good example of that. Um, so then um, after that, or I guess almost before, I guess the building of trying to come together with like-minded people in a sort of circle of sharing is maybe even more important as the first step because I see people now quite traumatized by the dominant narrative, the dominant media. People are feeling pretty depressed, worried, generally sort of scared of the future. And so then doing this in a, in a climate where we've been blamed for it, where there's this false analysis of false solutions, false you know, blaming is so desperately you know, destructive. So I urge people as a number one step to reconnect. And in fact, on our website, we will be making that clearer because we have on the website, we say rethink, and then we say renew and resist. So I'd like to be sure that there's the first word is reconnect, which mm -hmm. I speak about, but we haven't written enough about it. And the reconnection part of it is also an individual one, but the typical approach in the West is to think that the individual reconnection is what's going to start everything. 
I would argue that the community reconnection helps the inner reconnection. The inner reconnection is about training ourselves to just learn from spiritual traditions, to take deep breaths, to allow, our, essentially it's about balancing our brain so that the right brain isn't completely drowned out by a left brain chattering. The words that say, oh, is this gonna happen? And sort of living in the future, living in the past. It's about breathing and being in the here and now. It's a spiritual awakening that virtually every spiritual tradition teaches. And I've known a lot of people who were thinking, well, you know, peace in the world starts with inner peace. And they've been meditating for years and years, but I've been, again, from Ladakh, I've been trying to say, please work at both ends. And I would argue more than anything where I see effective healing is when it starts with the community group, meaning not some public huge forum. It means trying to identify between three and maybe maximum 20 people who you resonate with who are in a similar situation to you, who have a similar inclination to worry about the world, want to do something, who are, you know, people that you know, and if from work or just ordinary life, sometimes if you're lucky, it can be family members, very often it's not family members, but with them to, to commit to coming together to say, what can we do collectively to, uh, together to heal ourselves and the world. And this is local futures, we claim, it can sound very arrogant, but I, you know, it comes from this experience of indigenous culture. And so if you want to learn from indigenous culture, not just about individual people, but actually from how indigenous people lived, then what we have to offer is a a sort of a package of ideas and articles and films and practices. And, but it starts with this being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to realize that partly how I'm going to feel healed is by being able to share the deepest feelings I have. They may be joyful feelings too, but very often these days, they're often a burden of concern about family issues that we keep trying to hide because we're living in a culture where we were trained from school onwards to try to be perfect and to be something other than who we are. And then we built this wall around the nuclear family where it's only in the nuclear family where we can pick our nose or fart. And <laughs> outside, well, we wouldn't dream of it. There we've got to be much more perfect. And it's, it's a tragic thing that we're also building those walls thicker because we often feel we shouldn't meddle. And by the way, that's another lesson from indigenous culture is that in a healthy community, people always meddle. And I, you know, I experienced, it's about a hundred villages in Ladakh. It wasn't just one village. It was, it was about a hundred thousand people in about a hundred villages. And, um, and again and again and again, I experience how naturally, of course, people are going to talk about other people if they see they're unhappy or if there's something that's gone wrong or if they're very happy and they have a reason to celebrate with them. Meddling and gossiping can become very negative when people have become insecure, when they've felt threatened. 
just like prejudice grows, competition and conflict grows with that. But this, uh, you know, con you know, sharing and caring about others and feeling cared for by others is a deep, deep human need. Mm. By the way, in our film, Gabor Mate also talks about how in our physiological, in our brain system, there is no place for competition and aggression, but there is the deep need for love and connection. And so that's really this fundamental driving uh, force in human beings. We want to be loved, we want to feel connected. And of course, every baby feels that so totally. Mm. What we forget is that we've allowed that deep need to feel loved and connected, to be perverted by a commercial system which targets children, particularly in their vulnerable peer group, segregating them in school into separate age groups is completely unnatural. So then as an eight-year-old, suddenly you're getting the message from essentially a commercial system that you've got to be this and you've got to be you know, good at this and you've got to have this iPad and you've got to have those running shoes. Otherwise you won't get the love and admiration and connection that you long for. So the commercial system is perverting this universal human need for love. Now in the reconnection that we're talking about is that we actually start opening up to that and understanding how even as adults we're affected by it. <clears throat> and when we start sharing stories about our deeper concerns and about our fears, you know, our personal inner concerns, and then we start moving on to looking at the state of the world and what we can do together. That is what we encourage, that we really try to do it as part of a we. What can we do, not just what can I do? And then we find people have different skills, different abilities, and there's so much that we can do collectively. Um, and then uh, in terms of the renewal, we would say probably after the personal reconnection and the gaining of strength and inspiration that comes from that, focusing on local food initiatives. And remember there that people think, oh, well, we have a farmer's market, it's already happening. It's nothing like enough. You just got to do a few numbers and you'll see so much more is needed. And the more you examine it, you'll see that it's also such an amazing opportunity for meaningful work for young people, whether it be in the growing or in the restaurants or in the shops or in the farmers markets that actually create a thriving local economy around food. Now, the next step I would probably say the most important would be to find a way of finding some collective finance. And it could be that as a group that you look out for NDIS opportunities, or it could be that if you have 20 people and each person puts in a thousand dollars, it's amazing what you could do, even with 20,000, even mm -hmm. if it means paying someone to help with some of the work that needs to happen. There's a lot of emphasis these days on renewable energy, community energy. I just want to warn there that I think there's been an overemphasis and very much linked to electronic app high-tech ways of doing things 
And equally, I would say with local currencies, there's an over-focus on doing everything via the internet. And I think we need to be aware that that makes us much more vulnerable. And it's generally speaking for localization, the internet is not a necessary tool. And in fact, trying to do it without it, mm. I is more rewarding and more secure and more meaningful in the long run. Yeah. Well, having said that, where on the internet can we find more information? Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's so many things that we can read and it's so inspiring to hear all these ideas and it's making me want to run out and do them all at once. But could you tell people where they can, like you've got this new movie that's just come out, you've got your website tell people where they can look for more information thank you thank you for asking for that because i never remember to do yeah. that but yeah our website is localfuture.org and we have many tools i recommend the economics of happiness film as well as our new film planet local a quiet revolution i also recommend that you look at our localization action guide and we have many other tools. I mean, we are like the library if you are interested at all in localization. There's no other organization in the world that has been promoting that and working on it from a global perspective for about 40 years. So there's a lot of material there. And there are even readings from many authors that should be much better known looking at real learning from indigenous cultures, looking at how the average person in Australia, America, England is actually getting poorer while the economy is growing. Many, many bits of information that could really help to strengthen you. Mm. Uh, and I hope you'll join in to celebrate World Localization Day, which is our attempt to make visible in this very limited way that we can the, you know, literally hundreds of millions of things going on around the world that can give us a reason to be joyful and positive and want us, you know, wake us up to wanting to join this movement. It's such a win-win-win strategy. Yeah, certainly is. And people can also choose to, like, do an um, event with the film, can't they? So they could actually host a screening of the film. Thank you for saying that. That's right. I would love people to, to do that. There's a, uh, it's, it'll be released now tomorrow and uh, you could organize just a group to come around to your house or you know, a small group to watch the film together. And then ideally also you could sign up for our after film discussion where I'll be talking to Jeremy Lent and Joanna Macy if you haven't heard about them, I hope you will look them up again on our website. They're very special thinkers that I think you'll be thrilled to hear from if you haven't already. Joanna Macy and Jeremy Lent. Mm. Um, and if, you, if you've heard of Damon Gamow, he's in our film. Uh, Russell Brand features a lot because he's been very supportive of this. Gabor Mate, Vandana Shiva, David Holmgren is in the film, um, and yeah, many others that I, many of whom you won't know, but I think you'll be you'll be impressed and inspired by them. Yeah, I think people will. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've got a lot going on at the moment. So go to the website, people can find out more. Yeah. Thanks so much, Robin. Thank, thank you. you.